Well, tonight um, we are going to pick up where we left off last time in the churches. And uh, for those of you listening, next week we will not have a message because we have the Seder meal. And so um, there will be a break for that. Unless you want to join us, then you need to get in touch with me soon. So, um, chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're picking up here. And we are now on the church of Thyatira. We have already done uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and now we have Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea left. So verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So first of all, to kind of touch a little bit on what Thyatira is, what was this place in history? It was about 40 miles east of Pergamum, as we continue to move on the circle here. Uh, it receives the longest of the seven letters. And we see that there's other history here we see in Scripture in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We see Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira. We also know that she was a seller of, uh, or Thyatira was a seller of purple. And I believe Lydia also worked with that kind of cloth. So uh, it's just kind of a little bit of the background of that church. Not a whole lot to say about it beyond that right now. Um, we see that the attribute of Christ that's given here from chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, are the eyes like flames of fire and the feet like fine brass. Now, if I don't tell you any more about this church, eyes of fire and feet of brass ought to just put in some kind of characteristic. Eyes of fire are judgment and uh, seeing through. Feet like burnished, brand, burnished bronze or brass is a judgment picture. And so right away we kind of get an idea here that something's going to be wrong as we continue reading. Because, like I said, the attribute of Christ is going to fit the personality of the church, you might say. So something's not going to be good here. You can see that already. Well, this time period that we are looking at is roughly about 500 to 1500 A.D. Again, these are somewhat made-up dates. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. But a general attitude of this period from 500 to 1500. That's going to basically take us up to the point of Reformation, which means the other church is going to be more of a Reformation time. And what we see here with the church of Thyatira is interestingly the name of what it means. If you kind of dissect the word, it would be continuing sacrifice. Well, the time period that we see from 500 to 1500 is the beginning of the Catholic Church. We see Mary beginning to gain prominence, and we see indulgences 
uh, growing. We see that there are these works that you have to do in order to be saved, not works that we do because we're saved. And we're going to see, as I said, after this in the next church, kind of a rebellion against that, uh, and eyes being opened, and Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the wall, all of those kinds of things happening. But right now, this is a growth of the mixture of the church. Uh, we see in 709, there was the doctrine of the kissing of the Pope's feet comes about. In 850 AD, we see the holy water, in, that being added into the church and the blessing of this holy water. In 1090, we see the rosary beads being used to pray to Mary. Uh, we see that was introduced by Peter the Hermit. We see in 1215, the idea of transubstantiation, the idea that in communion, that that wine actually turned into literal blood of Jesus. And even to this day in the Catholic Church, that is something that is believed by many, which is why if you spill the communion elements on the ground, there are priests that will literally get down and suck it out of the carpet because it is the blood of Jesus, the actual blood. And in many cases, it is a re-sacrificing of Jesus. And so this... Thyatira, meaning continuing sacrifice, is kind of an interesting fit. 1229, uh, the Bible was basically forbidden to the layman. It, you, if you wanted answers, you're going to get it from the church. Uh, and that was a big problem, is nobody could really find the truth for themselves. It was only coming from the Pope or the priests wasn't in full print until the printing press, so very few could read. But yet, you go back before this, we see they had the letters to the churches, we, we, they had the writings, always did. And then there was this dark ages that came about where, yeah, the, it just people were illiterate, reading wasn't as big of a deal. Yes, and Latin was the dominant Bible for a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate, yeah. Yep. Ironically, you can go to some churches today, some Catholic churches will still only do it in Latin, or it, it really doesn't matter if the congregation can understand or not. You just have to be there. Exactly. Yep. I grew up on this when I first started going to church. It was still done in Latin with the priest based on the voice. Really? Yep. Yep. So it didn't matter if you could understand. It's just the fact of you being there, that's all that counts. Yep. So, you know, we also had Constantine, you know, in 325 in the church before this that we talked about mixing. Well, the popes basically come in and replace this. And what they did, whereas Constantine had mixed paganism in with Christianity, the popes came in and they just kind of melded and solidified paganism into the church. Where the mixture became a cake. They weren't separate elements anymore. It was a cake of yuck, basically. Um, so in 325, going back a little bit again, the empire moved the capital to Rome. And Rome 
moved later then to Constantinople. And what we see, Constantinople is basically Istanbul today. And what we see happening is that Constantinople became known as the Eastern Orthodox. And then those that kept it in Rome became known as the Roman Catholics. So you had a division there based on where the, the seat of authority was placed. Um, it was a divide that was created. In 606 AD, the emperor bestowed a universal bishop of the church to Boniface III, who became known as the Papa or Papal. That's where we get the papal or papacy from, is from Papa. He became the father, and this is really the first pope. And at that time, we also then start seeing things like purgatory, the worship of saints really grew, um, the worship of even angels. And it was a natural transition because they were already used to worshiping false gods, emperors, things like that. So it wasn't a big stretch. Today it seems kind of strange for us, but you have to realize that was the culture of the day, to worship men. You know, all the way back into Egypt, they were worshiping, you know, the pharaohs and so on. And we saw the same thing with the Roman emperors. So it was natural for them to, you know, take these saints and angels and whatnot as little demigods. So that's kind of a, a real brief run-through of some of the stuff that's going on in the church during this time period of history. And it is the dominant theme of the church at that time. So when you hear this, it says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. He goes on, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat, sac eat things sacrificed to idols. Isn't it interesting that eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality is connected to Jezebel? I mean, like the, the woman antichrist, you might say. The very same thing that in Acts chapter 15, the modern day church is warned against doing. The very same things that we today say, oh, those are old things, that they used to do that in the past, but it doesn't make any difference anymore. At least the uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. Maybe there's more to this than we realize. But again, food sacrificed to idols, all of these kind of things, we, I, I think of that idea of transubstantiation that is introduced into the church. Um, the sexual immorality. I don't know if you've ever done any research when it comes to Catholicism and the Jesuits and things like that, but um, there has been a, a sexual misconduct that has gone through Catholicism in particular throughout the centuries. Not too many years ago here even was it the 90s or was it later even in Boston the number of priests that had been molesting kids or the number of uh, monasteries and where were the nuns at? Convents. Convents, thank you. Where they have 
hundreds of, of babies dead in underneath because of abortions, because the nuns would get pregnant, and what a terrible thing it was for them to get pregnant. So they would abort, even though the Catholic Church is one of the strongest for right to life, you know, a, a pro-life movement today. The evils that have gone on, uh, Dave Hunt wrote a book called A Woman Rides a Beast, and it traces through uh, a lot of the popes through the history, and to show you the evils that went on in the Catholic Church are just tremendous. And I don't mean to be Catholic bashing here. I will equally bash the Protestants here coming up when we get to the Reformation. Uh, however, uh, it's all of this to say that the, the state of the church had fallen greatly. And the spirit of Jezebel had been allowed to be in there. Now today, as of late, we even might hear the spirit of Jezebel. Well, biblically speaking, it seems to associate that with sexual immorality and food, you know, to idols. Sometimes we can attach different things, but biblically speaking here, that's what it, it attaches it to. Um, some will say it has to do with a woman's authority and having control over the man. You could argue that biblically because when you look at the story of Jezebel, she was the one that spurned her husband Ahab into doing so many evil things. Strangely enough as well, we see that in the story of Jezebel and Ahab, one of the things was Naboth's vineyard. And Ahab wanted this vineyard. Well, Naboth wouldn't sell it. So Jezebel comes home and... She says, stop your whining. I'll get it for you. Basically, you big baby, why don't you stand up and be a man? And so she goes and gets some scoundrels to kill Naboth, falsely accuse him. And then she says, go, he's dead. Go, go take the, the vineyard. And so she helped acquire this land. Well, interestingly, historically as well, during this time period, the Catholic Church amassed great amount of land and wealth during this time period in, in history. That's what they were known for, is their amassing of wealth. Even to this day, if you go to the Vatican, it's remarkable. You've been there. It is unbelievable, the money that's in that church. It is one of the richest churches in the world, the Catholic Church. Part of the reason for that is, again, the attitude of tithing. <clears throat> I'm all for tithing, but in a Catholic mindset, sometimes it's not from the heart as much as it is out of guilt and responsibility, and that's it. And so uh, they're good tithers. Catholics are good tithers. Today, uh, Daniel Joseph's message, he had an opening, and what's the guy's name? Andrew Farley who wrote Twisted Scripture. He had like a three-minute clip of him speaking, and it was so sad to hear him arguing against the law of God and that we don't need to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. Otherwise, it would be a sin not to keep Sabbath. It would be a sin to eat pork. It would be a sin to do all these other things. And it's like the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. And 
I mean, it was just, it was really sad to hear it. I know where he's coming from. I know where his heart's at. But to see the twisting of Scripture, when the guy wrote a book called The Twisting of Scripture, it's just sad. And I think we need to get back to realize these things matter. Because one of the things you're going to see to these churches is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is to this church of that time period 2,000 years ago. But it was also prophetic of all throughout time. And it's prophetic in a sense of to you now personally because it personalizes it. He who has an ear. God knew this wasn't going to be a letter that was just going to be written and then out of date, you know, after they sent it to the church. This is prophetic prophecy. And it does speak to us individually. We know that um, Jezebel was a prophetess, a false prophet, nonetheless, but she led many into Baal worship as well. If you recall, when Elijah was having his problems too, it was Jezebel. Ahab wasn't the problem, it was Jezebel. There was indeed a uh, female authority in the church, and she had taken that authority. And I find it interesting, I can't remember where it is in Scripture, but it talks about in the end times how a woman will lead and that uh, they're going to be asking her to lead. Uh, I remember when, uh, oh, I don't remember who it was, but Vody Bauckham used that verse as well in relation to some politics and, and women in politics, but especially in the churches. And we are seeing a rise in women pastors and things like that. I strongly disagree with women pastors. I do not, the scripture does not allow for that. We'll talk about some of that later. Not that they wouldn't be capable. Frankly, I probably know more women who know more about the Bible than I know men today because men have dropped the ball and are not being the leaders that they're supposed to be. We see Deborah was a judge and a prophetess as well, but what was going on at that time? The men were spineless. That was a a sign of judgment when God had to raise up a woman to do the man's job. So it has nothing to do with their capability. It has everything to do with the role God has assigned to them. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into her great tribulation, into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children, and with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So, um, saying if you don't repent, the Son of God here is going to bring destruction upon her with his feet of bronze. Those eyes, you think you're getting away with this? I see everything. It's coming. So you can kind of see, like I said before, there's a reason that that attribute is given here. Um, And note that it's not just to Jezebel, but to her children. In other words, those who follow her here in verses 23 and following. They're going to be cast on a bed of suffering. 
rather, you know, in comparison to the bed of lust and, and, and the bed of, of sinful passion, of human desires. Now, that's basically, you know, we don't know the details of what's going on, but when you attach that to what was going on in the church throughout this time period, this is what we're seeing. A lot of tolerating, a lot of absolute corruption going on in the churches. Now, this is not to say there weren't solid believers and whatnot throughout this time period. There were. But in general, this is the idea of what was going on in the churches. Now, I want to address this idea of women in the church rather than just throwing it out there. Uh, just one scripture verse, Timothy talks about this as well, but I'm going to hit Corinthians. It says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. We don't like even addressing this in churches because of the culture that we live in. Again, I cannot stress enough, this does not mean that a woman is not capable. I know many women more capable than many men I know. It just doesn't make it right. Because there are different roles. And I like this part, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, if you think you're godly, you think you know God's word, and you deny this, then you're really not spiritually gifted. And so if I see churches who are lifting up women pastors it, i have a hard time thinking that they have anything that i can trust coming out of their their minds their their mouths i think there's also some common sense and balance here i i don't know exactly how far you take this as far as a woman should remain silent. Does that mean she can't even say good morning? I, I, that's not what this is saying. If you took this verse by itself, I think maybe you could go there. But when we read further and when we read in Timothy, it also says that I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And what I think this is really saying is more of the aspect that she is not to be in charge in the church. I think this is different when it comes to being a president or a boss of a company. This is talking about the church, not, not those things out in, in the, the world, okay? But in the church, they are not to have authority over the man. That's the issue. And so it doesn't mean that a woman can't ask questions, you know, or visit and have that. We know that in Israel or when they would, you know, the churches, they were segregated even today at the Wailing Wall. The men are in one area, the women are in another. The women teach. There are women who can teach women, but they're not supposed to be having the authority. That's the key. That's the way I have come to understand it. Okay. 
We could do a whole Bible study on this alone, but I'm not going to go there, but I just want you to kind of see, you know, in part what I'm talking about here tonight. I know a few Mr. Moms, and let me tell you, it doesn't mean that they aren't qualified either, but they can never replace a woman. You cannot do it. Mr. Moms will never replace mom. I don't know what it is. I just know that uh, a child always will need the mom. Always. You're sick. You don't need dad. You need mom. No matter how old they are. No matter how old they are. Yeah. But point being is God has created us differently. And it doesn't mean that a woman can't go out and help outside, and it doesn't mean a man can't help on the inside. Okay, I know there are cultural constructs that we have built up that, you know, a woman has to do the dishes and, you know, the man has to change the tires. Okay, that's not what the Bible's talking about here. We're more about the church, and I think just to recognize there is a difference between a man and a woman and no matter how much the society tries to change that, you can't. You just can't. Um, going back to verse 23 here, just to revisit this again. I'll kill her children with death. All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. How? Again, with those eyes and his feet. I will give to each one of you according to your works. The part I'm going to focus on is according to your works. Again, we have done a good job of wiping that away in Christianity, but the Bible is filled with this. Daniel Joseph's message today talked heavily on that, as well as last week. But look at this in Romans 2, verse 6 and following. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor, and immortality. Notice the word salvation is not there. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So even to this day, God is going to honor your works. And Daniel's messages the last couple of weeks, man, I'll tell you, he really showed you. It is, listen, if you want your best life now, <laughs> obey the commandments of God. Because it has promise in the New Testament and the Old Testament for all kinds of blessings. All kinds of them. And you're not, this idea, oh no, now you're a Christian, you don't need to do anything, is simply not biblical. It is a twisting of the scriptures. Well, verse 24 continues, Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. 
So the rest of you, I think meaning to those who have not followed the teachings of Jezebel or Satan. Christ asked them simply to do this one thing. Just hold on to what you got. At least do that. He's not asking much. Keep the faith in the service that you now possess. And he says, those who do so are going to be given authority over the nations. Now, I find that interesting that he doesn't call them to do more. I think that he knew they were weak. Sometimes I look at that, the church right now, it's like, man, I hope, all, I hope we can, since I have lost so much faith that they're going to repent, at least not without this world absolutely falling apart, I'm just praying that they don't get worse. I don't know. But he says that he's going to give them power over the nations. What does that mean? Well, you're going to see what it means later in chapter 20. It says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and what do they do? They reigned with Christ a thousand years. You are going to reign. You are given authority to judge. Now we'll talk more specific about that later, but just for now, a little sneak peek of it. We even see here uh, when Revelation 2.27, backing up a little bit, he said that those who overcame, he said, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, you're going to rule over the ungodly. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but let me tell you, this is more of a millennial reign type of thing than it seems to be in heaven. Because in heaven, there's no evil there. Who are you going to rule over, right? Psalm 2 verse 9 said, You shall break them with the rod, of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Here in Revelation 2, he was quoting Psalm 2. Daniel 7 said, The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Okay, there's a kingdom. A kingdom needs a rule, an authority. Then in verse 27, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints the people of the Most High. 1 Corinthians 6.2 Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You are getting authority. So, the attribute that was given for this church of Thyatira being the Son of God is interesting. It's back there in verse 18. It's interesting because it is the only time that word is used, that description of Jesus, the Son of God, in the entire book of Revelation, and it gets it for this church. So, I think it's because you're going to receive that authority. He has that authority. He has that right to give the authority. I don't know, but it's used for a reason. Overall, you could call this period, this church period, the Dark Ages. We also had impartial burnings at the stake. As I mentioned before, vast idol and saint worship 
We have the Crusades going on where there was all kinds of uh, Christians, Jews, murdered in the name of Christ, in the name of God, the growth of the papacy. So why wouldn't you call it the Son of God, the only true infallible God that was to be worshipped rather than the saints, rather than the angels? The feet of burnished bronze, clearly a a perfect time for, for judgment and that kind of thing, to judge the wickedness that had been done in God's name through all the crusades and whatnot. So you overcome, what do you get? He says that you're going to get the morning star. In essence, you get Jesus. So to recap these churches, again, these dates are just round numbers, but Ephesus, losing their first love from 33 to 100 AD, the apostolic church. From Smyrna, we see historically, shortly after that, the persecution of Christians begins from 100 to 300 AD, the persecuted church, nothing was uh, wrong with them. He just said, hang on, you're going to be rewarded. Remember, I'm the first and the last. I overcame death, you can too. Then you had Pergamum from 3 to 500. We showed you last week that that name meant objectable or objection for marriage, objectable marriage, a mixture that shouldn't be, an unequally yoked attitude of church and state. And now then we saw tolerating. So what we see is the first four churches, remember I said there's going to be a theme, four, two, one? The first four churches are a progression of just basically, you know, from good to bad to the worst. Now there's going to be a change in the next two. And we're going to see uh, kind of more of a, a Reformation period coming. And you'll see that here in Sardis and Philadelphia, especially Philadelphia. So that gets us to chapter 3. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, we have Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. All right, so we have an, ad, an, an attribute of God given here. Seven spirits. It's the spirit of God that basically knows it, the spirit of understanding, wisdom. We talked about that in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the seven attributes. And then we see uh, the, the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches. And so the attribute given to this church is the one who holds the angels and the one whose spirit is among you. But he says this, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. So it's weak. It is a weak church. For I have not found your works perfect before God. So not only is there an indication that, you know, he's among you, but remember he said, I hold these angels. I can remove them too. If you don't strengthen what you have, those angels, I can pull them away. I can take your church away. Well, I have 1500 to 1700 as the basic time period of history that I think is being uh, symbolized here. We know that the Reformation really gets its feet in 1517. Martin Luther, um, the Diet of Worms, where he was 
called to repent, and he says, here I stand, I can do no other. He was not willing to compromise. And when that happened, it caused another wave of persecution to start coming, and hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed. Again, in the name of God. Um, but all because of the Protestant Reformation beginning. Now, interestingly, just kind of think about the word Protestant. It, it means to protest. And even to this day, the Protestant church, we still can't not protest. We just, we argue and fight with one another constantly. I'm not saying sometimes there's not a need for that, but I think a lot of times we argue over really dumb things too. More and more important things uh, in the last number of years, but for years it would be the color of the carpet, <coughs> whether your altar was big enough or had a cross on the wall or not, or whatever the case might be. We'll talk a little bit more about that here coming up. But Sardis was the capital of Lydia, the home of Aesop. That's how you say it, right? Aesop's fables? Aesop, is it? Okay. The home of Aesop. Um, it was built on a very high elevation. There were cliffs on three sides of it, so they felt pretty secure, which is kind of interesting because throughout history, twice they were conquered by their enemies. And both times they were conquered, it was because their watchmen fell asleep, because they were so confident. They became so used to being, hey, who can touch us? They, they became complacent. I'm going to say the church has done that today too. So it's very significant there in verse 2. He says, be watchful. I, I don't know if that's why God put it that way or not, but very significant, I think. Seven spirits, as I said, is the spirits that given to the churches, but it also shows the knowledge of God as well, that he knows what's going on in these churches. He holds the angels in their hands. And so they are in need of guidance from the Spirit of God, from their spiritual leaders, those stars. And this church actually does not receive any acknowledgement of any good in the letter. Instead, it's a reputation of being alive, but actually is dead. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, Timothy warns us as well in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. I know I have thought that about churches today for a long, long time, that we have a form of godliness. We have a, a reputation of being alive, but modern-day Christianity is just pathetic, truly pathetic. I don't care what denomination it is. There are good churches out there, don't get me wrong, but as a whole, Christianity has become a joke for atheists, for talk show hosts, and I think it's been well-deserved because of the hypocrisy in the churches not standing up for the truth of God's word. I really like a, you know, Penn and Teller. I always get them mixed up. Is it Teller? Teller doesn't talk. Teller doesn't talk. Okay, Penn is the one. He's, a, he's an outspoken atheist. But I love the fact that he gives Christians credit. He says, when somebody comes and witnesses to him, he says, 
Good for them because at least they're living out what they believe. I can't hold. He says the ones that make me mad are the ones that won't witness to me. He's a devout atheist. But he even sees the hypocrisy. If you really truly believe I'm going to hell, he says, you better be telling me the truth if that's what you believe. Right? And so I think that we have that same reputation of being alive, but we're pretty dead. I know that today I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little out of order, but I find this interesting as far as the churches today go. And you probably can't see it too well, but this shows the average age of people in the church today based on denomination. The top one, the Presbyterian Church in America, the median age is 50, 59 Presbyterian Church USA, 59. Uh, Anglican Church, 15, uh, 57. UCC is 59. You can see they're all in their 50s and, and higher. But as it goes down the list, look at the ones that are younger, like Buddhists, 39. Nothing in particular, 38. Here's just some blowing up a little bit on the top. Again, the church has been divided in so many different ways because we just can't agree. And the reason we can't agree is because we're not holding to the Word of God, to the Spirit of God. Well, that's kind of what was going on there at Thyatira as well. He says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few... I'm going to just stop there first. So remember what you've received. You knew the truth. You know where the truth is at. Hold fast, but repent. You need to repent. He says, if you are not going to watch, if you're not going to be watchful, I'm coming like a thief. And I love that because, again... As I'm going to show you in a moment, well, let me just jump to that. That means the ungodly. He says, if you don't repent, you won't have wisdom to understand the times you're living in. And I'm going to come and remove your church. I'm going to come to you like a thief. I've said this before, but here's that verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 that people always quote, Brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction is going to come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They'll not escape, but you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you. If you think that you have no idea and you, you can't tell when the Lord's coming back, at least a season of, then you must be an unbeliever. Because as believers, you are not to walk in darkness. That is exactly what he is saying here. If you don't repent, I am coming like a thief. If you do repent, I'm not going to come to you like a thief. You know, one of the biggest reasons that I think we're in trouble right now is only the really solid Christians seem to get it that we're really in trouble right now in America. I know lots of Christians that go to church have an appearance of being alive and 
it's just like, oh, it, it, it's, you know, it's always been like this or whatever. Guys, right now, Russia, they're not planting anything. The, the tractors aren't out in the fields because the drones are up in the sky. They think they're going to get bombed. They're not planting anything. Fertilizer. I think, aren't they the number one producer of fertilizer? Ukraine. Ukraine? A big, a big producer of fertilizer. Most of the farmers have bought their fertilizer this year. Next year, it's going to be rough. Yeah, it, it's already gone up, yeah. Well, but we're okay here, but overseas, it's going to be really rough. Really rough overseas. Wheat production, I don't know, but Russia's really big on wheat production, right? And Ukraine, too? Okay, so don't think that's not going to affect you next year. That will affect us, absolutely, has to, can't not affect us. And even just the food that we import, it's not even what we can grow here or can't. Yeah. And I keep thinking or hearing that, you know, God is, you know, going to give us a reprieve. Why? I keep asking people, these Christians that say that, why would he? What has the church done to, I don't want to say the word deserve or earn, but what has the church done really to deserve that blessing? Well, Scriptures. Over and over again in the Old Testament, he goes, like, especially in the prophets, he talks about, you know, I sent this punishment on you. I sent famine on your land. I sent pestilence. I sent disease. And you didn't repent. And you didn't repent. And you didn't repent. And you thought it was because you stopped sacrificing to your idols. You never even made the connection between, oh, this is God punishing us. Yeah. Not, oh, well, you know, oh, it just happens or whatever it is. Yeah. The whole book of Amos is about that. Mm -hmm. I sent drought. I sent disease on your plants I, I sent economic collapse I sent all of this and still you would not repent mm -hmm. and guys there's a day come I think God has given us warnings and still we did not repent I think the handwriting is on the wall that we're about to see a lot of what revelation is happening now almost two years ago you know we talked about the white horse possibly being COVID not that COVID is all of Revelation. But I still see that as a real possibility. Go back and watch that again on Corona End Times Watch, it's called. Because after that comes war. After war comes the famine. I don't know. I still have to wait and see. I'm not making a prediction, per se, but I'm saying the handwriting does seem to be on the wall. At the very least, this is a pattern of what is to come that'll be even worse, but I think this might be a good possibility, and we need to be ready. We need to be watchful. This church of, of Sardis was a dead church, so they couldn't understand the times they were in. We're a dead church. It seems to be speaking to, to the church today quite loudly to me. And this is why 
we should be not complacent. We have gotten so used to, just like those people in Sardis, they got so used to, oh, you know, we can sleep here and there. That's the attitude we have. Oh, it, you know, it, we've always made it through. We're America. I mean, who, really, could we fall in an hour? I was listening to Jamie Walden this week, and he is absolutely convinced we are Babylon of Revelation. I'm not going to disagree with him. I don't know for sure. I'm not going to say I'm absolutely convinced, but I'm not going to disagree with him. And that means we will fall in an hour, in a single day. And so while everybody is saying peace and safety, those people who are not watchful, who he's coming upon like a thief, it's going to happen. Oh, it's going to be fine. We'll pull out of this just like we always do. I'm not so sure of that. I mean, we could go on and on about the things that are happening and where, you know, the Fed coin and the Great Reset and all of that. If you listening or you don't know anything about the Fed coin and the Great Reset, you better start opening your eyes and do some research because this is not somewhere in the corner. This is the federal government talking about this. These are the people in power talking about this, and it's coming. It is absolutely coming. And so we need to be prepared. So let that speak to you as well. Now, with all of that said, the biggest way you prepare is stop being so worldly. Not that you have to go build your bunkers and, and buy all kinds of food and sell you know, everything you own to get food. Not to say that it wouldn't be a good thing to have some of that, but what I'm saying is you need to be right with God. Repent examine yourself find out those things that that are idols in your home things that you're running to to find comfort in other than god and you need to be preparing spiritually and so for a time period here from 1500 to 1700 even though this was a dead church we saw a wake-up call martin luther john calvin others really started to wake the church up and they, they did seem to take heed a little bit. And you're going to bring that up into the 1700s, even in the 1800s, and then we're going to get to the 1900s and things just start to plummet again. And that's why I say that the first four kind of followed a theme, and then we're going to have this other wake-up kind of, you know, I should say a theme of getting worse, and then there's this little wake-up call in the next two churches that we're seeing. Um, here's kind of a little review of it. Ephesus, look what it said, repent, do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. Look what it said then in the second church, Smyrna, be faithful even to the point of death. Pergamum, repent, otherwise I will come or I will soon come. Thyatira, only hold on to what you have until I come. Sardis, if you do not wake up, I will come. This next church that we're about to see, I am coming soon. Laodicea, right after this, chapter 4, verse 1, it's going to say this. Well, first of all, Laodicea, here I am. And then chapter 4, verse 1, it says there's a door standing open. But in Laodicea, here I am, I stand at the door. Right after that, the door's open. 
See that progression? So there's something here. Maybe all the details we don't have figured out exactly, but I see a, a general picture of bringing us up to the point to where that door is going to be opened. Sardis, it was still, hey, I'm going to come. But then we get into Philadelphia. Now, before we get into Philadelphia, though, let me just show you this here. He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Those who do wake up, those who are watchful, are going to be given white garments, and he will not blot them out from the book of life. I had a text this week when I was somewhere gone, and uh, uh, Selah said, uh, I... I solved Calvinism, something like that. Or I, I, I beat Calvinism or something like that. <laughs> and, so, and I'm like, all right, this is good. What, what this is going to be about? And this was what it was. She says, how can you blot out if you're not in it? You can't be blotted out unless your name is there. I, my theology says this, and you can disagree if you want, but my theology based on what I see in Scripture is everybody's name. Everybody has an opportunity and a chance. It's when you reject the grace of God that he will blot you out. Everybody has an opportunity, but God didn't create somebody intentionally to go to hell. To me, that just goes against the characteristic of God of being a loving, just God. It would be unjust. And people say, but he's sovereign. He can do what he wants. No, he can't. He cannot be unjust. As far as this clothed in white garments, this is a robe of righteousness. You will receive it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. And so again, I hope you're seeing, and I haven't been doing a very good job of pointing this out, but all of these blessings that if you overcome, this is going to happen. You see it later in chapter 19 and 20, sometimes 21. Let me show you a little bit about this book of life, too. It is an Old Testament concept as well as a New Testament concept. Psalm 69, 28, May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Here, going off kind of what Jordan was saying, is that, you know, blotted out of the book, that they're no longer listed with the righteous, that they lost their right to be there. Philippians 4, 3, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's a yoke fellow? Yeah, those who are basically, you're, you're serving together with them. Revelation 17, 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come out up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. Here we go. Maybe this is good for you to support there. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. So that would support more. You're not written in there until you have some sort of belief. But again, interesting. Revelation 20, verse 12, another one. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Um, we'll talk about that when we get there. That's interesting. Verse 15 there, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That could mean they had been blotted out already. 
21, 27, nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Daniel 12, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. It's everywhere. And so uh, this book of life, again, is not a new concept to the, the New Testament is all I want you to see there. So that leads us to Philadelphia. Um, we are going to have to hit that one next time. Uh, we are out of time. So each day I'm getting a church less than I thought I was going to get done. So we will close in prayer and call it a night. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for just the, the words of insight here tonight. We just pray that we would continue to meditate upon them, search our own hearts, that we would be watchful and that we would be prepared. God, uh, have us have ears to hear and eyes to see that whatever you have planned, you, you tell us even in Amos that you do nothing without first telling your servants the prophets. Lord, let us know so that we can be prepared to, to ease the suffering as much as possible for those who walk and follow after you. And let us be a help for others that we would not just be searching to, to help our, our own uh, families, but the family of God. And so teach us your ways, let us know you more, and give us wisdom and discernment. In the name of Jesus, Yeshua, we pray, amen.